0: Well, good morning. So good to have you here. I pray that today we could stop and pause and consider Christmas because I think sometimes it rushes in and we miss all that God has for us at Christmas. You know, Christmas really is this juxtaposition of good and evil, of light and dark. I mean, there's kindness and goodness and generosity in the season, but then I think there's also greed. Ego and isolation. Just look at Black Friday and think about the people that try and cut in line and things like that. And so, as, as kind of an epitome of this, if you watch or if you saw our news and notes, you saw this picture. But if you didn't, then bonus for you, you get to see it again or you get to see it for the first time. This is the hipster nativity set that's available on Amazon for only. No, no, we're not selling it. But notice there is, you know, 100% organic cow with um, grain-free, gluten-free feed, the sheep with the Christmas sweater, the shepherd with the earphones. I think he's watching a new Christmas video on his tablet. Um, You know, we've got the three wise men that all have different aspects of facial hair, if you can't see it. And and uh, then you've got the very tight jeans, and they're all on segways delivering Amazon gifts, where, don't forget, you've got Mary with her off-the-shoulder um, 80s blouse that is out popular with her duck uh, lips, and holding her cafe mocha grande, and then Joseph uh, taking a selfie of them, and you can't see it, but he has a man bun uh, in his hair. So, there's the hipster nativity. Now, that doesn't necessarily, like, I don't hate it, but, uh, you know, you can put it back up. It doesn't necessarily bring me peace. I don't know about you, <coughs> but it, joy. It, it does bring a lot of joy. It does bring a lot of joy. You're right. And humor, for sure. Um, and I mentioned this in the news and notes, but... One of the things that I noticed about all the other nativity sets that I looked at is in every one of those nativity sets, the focus is on the Christ child. And not one person in this one is looking at the Christ child. And I just think it's an epitome and an an interesting moment in our lives. I don't think it's that far off. We didn't have those devices, you know, thousands of years ago, but I think there were just as many distractions. And do we come into the season and miss something that God has for us, ultimately his peace? But really, truly, this just shows me that Christmas is the ultimate juxtaposition. A helpless baby in a humble barn with ordinary, probably poor parents, with the height of of the Roman Empire, like the most powerful human institution in its day, potentially like of all days, is where God sends his son. And he says, his name will be God saves. He will be called the Prince of Peace. Emmanuel, God with us, It's on that night that God declares glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. I don't know about you, but I need that kind of peace. And I'd love to know how to get it because the Christmas nativity doesn't exactly tell me how to get it. But actually, I think the start of Jesus' ministry, specifically where he starts, when he starts, and how he starts, does show me how to be filled with that peace. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. So far, Matthew has told us supposedly where Jesus has come from, his genealogy. He has given a slice of his birth story, and he's given his temptation Um, His baptism and his temptation, that's pretty much, I mean, those are big things, but that's all that's happened in Matthew. But in chapter 4, it shows him embarking or starting in his ministry. So hear the word of the Lord today. It says, "When when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in an area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the galley of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking by the of the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew, They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And he said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in their boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This is the start of Jesus' ministry, and this is where we can find and be people of peace. So, where does Jesus start his ministry? Well, according to Matthew, he starts it in this place called Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is in this area of Zebulun and Naphtali. What, what that really means, if you don't know biblical uh, maps, is it means it's not Jerusalem, And Jerusalem was the city of peace. It was the central location for God's people. It's where everything religious happened. It's where the temple was built and God's glory had dwelt. And so it was not there. It's kind of like saying revival is going to happen in Las Vegas. Or Los Angeles. Or Cleveland. I mean, just places you wouldn't expect. Maybe Cleveland, but... I think in the same way as Matthew is writing, he has readers that have known this one true God, that they're Jewish, and they are considering Jesus, and so they're wondering the same thing. Like, why Capernaum? That's not the place it should be. And And so Matthew supports his assessment by quoting Isaiah 9. Isaiah is a prophet who was around about 700 years before Christ, and it says that, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled himself, or he, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, those living in this land of deep darkness." A light has dawned. And so Isaiah is talking about a time when the land of Israel, the God's people, had been divided into Judah and into Israel. And so these two, now not one kingdom, but two kingdoms are small kingdoms. There's also a kingdom of Syria that's up by Israel. And at the time, this very big, very bad, ever-threatening, growing presence called the Assyrian Empire is marching across the region, and so everybody who's a small country is freaking out. They're moving slow because they don't have technology, so it takes a long time to get there. It could take 20 years for them to march across the land, but when they come, they are pervasive. They are brutal. And so the nations are freaking out. And so this country of Syria and the country of Israel join forces and actually try to intimidate Judah into creating an alliance so that the three little countries can try and attack the big empire, which probably isn't gonna work, but I think it's something we naturally do. I mean, think about the last time somebody came aggressively towards you. How do you respond? I think most of us would respond with that kind of aggression. It's a natural thing. When somebody comes hard at us, we step up and come hard at them. If we don't, then we probably start to scheme. And that's what Ahaz, the king of Judah, was doing. He didn't take the bait of going aggressive because he'd already made an alliance with Assyria. When these two kings came a-knocking, he said, no, thank you. And he went to the big, bad empire and said, I think I'll make an alliance with you. Now, the only reason that Assyria probably said yes is because then they could more easily come in and take over. But Ahaz had the opportunity to trust God when this unsettling, distressing feeling came his way. He he had the opportunity to trust God. God said, don't make alliances with foreign nations. Don't put your trust in a military force. Put your trust in me, and I will prevail for you. I will provide for you. I will bring you peace. When the king, the ideal king of Judah and Israel, all Israel, David, did that, the land had peace. The people had peace. And it was more than just not war. There was goodness, generosity, and prosperity amongst people. It said that everyone had what they needed when David was on the throne. And yet, This king that's a great, 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 several-layer descendant ten generations down was not going to go there. And I think it, it, it highlights for us that when distressing and unpeaceful situations come our way, the most natural response for us is to freak out a little bit, to get aggressive. And if we don't do that, then we start scheming. How can I work this situation? See, Ahaz was asking, is it popular? Is it safe? And will it make sense? And Isaiah was saying to him, is it right? Is it true? And is it God's will? See, when we come to these places that are dark, this land is called the dark place. When we come to these places of the dark, we can't see but that means way more than physical. When we come to these places of the dark, we can't see what's going to happen next. And I don't know about you, when I can't see what's going to happen next, I don't really like it. I feel the anxiety just kind of like seeping in. And in those moments, God invites us to trust him, who can see everything, and he says, I am with you. In fact, when Isaiah came to Ahaz, he named one of his sons God with us. And said, before this child is going to be old enough to talk, walk, and eat adult foods, those two kingdoms that are freaking you out, Isaiah, they're going to be gone. And in just two years after Isaiah says this to Ahaz, literally Assyria takes out Syria, different place, and Israel. And they're wiped out. We are invited to become people of peace even in the places of darkness. But it's important for us to realize that that's not our first response. So what do you do when you're in those places of darkness, those places that start to cause anxiety, those places where you can't see and you don't know what's going to happen? Do you fight? Or do you scheme? Or do you pause and say, God, I know you're with me. Help me to trust you because you can see. I I put my faith in you. That's what we're invited to do. Now, even in the midst of the darkness, even when these countries make the wrong choice and they get pushed out of their land, even then the prophet says, you know what? A light will shine in the darkness. And that's why Matthew says these verses, that Jesus withdrew to Galilee. He withdrew to these northern regions that were places of darkness because where does light shine the brightest? In the darkest places. These were the first countries, the first tribes, the first regions of God's people to get deported, to get exiled, to get, suffer the consequences of this huge empire. And so God, even though it may not make sense to you, God in his mercy has his Messiah, his chosen one, go to those people first. Because God is fully just and will make all things right in his time. And I believe that's why Matthew says that Jesus goes to Galilee, goes to this region, and he lists all those same places because those were the places that were the darkest. And you can know when you're in a place of dark that Jesus will always find you there the light will always shine in the darkness. No matter if we fight or if we scheme, the light will shine through. Another aspect of becoming a person of peace is when when Jesus starts his ministry. Jesus says, according to Matthew, Jesus starts his ministry when John is put in prison. John is the baptizer. He's the one that has come before Jesus. He's the first prophet in 400 years to speak for God, and people from all over the place are flocking to hear him. Even though he says, I'm not the one you're looking for, I'm just preparing the way, but he speaks against the powers that are in in place. Specifically, Matthew 14 tells us that Herod arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying, it's not lawful for you to have her. So this is a little bit soap opera-ish, but Herod the Great has three sons. Well, he has many sons, but three sons that take power. And one of those is also named Herod. And his brother Philip had a wife named Herodias, just coincidentally had the same kind of name. But he's like, oh, I really like her, and I, I think I will take her as my wife. So even though she's She's your wife. I'm going to have her as my wife. And, and Herodias says, sure, I'll do that. I'm sure it wasn't exactly like that, but there's the story. And John the Baptist says, that's not actually how God operates. God's displeased with you. I'm not judging you. God's displeased with you. Remember the commandments? Do not worship other gods. Do not envy. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. I'm sure there's a few of them that are right there. See, when you decide to live under God's authority, you have to realize that will provoke every other authority. There can ultimately only be one. And John is put in prison because he says, "You know what, Herod? Because Herod the Great was a scoundrel, but Herod his son was a scoundrel too. Even though you're wor- even though you're ruthless." Even though it looks like your word is law and anything you say will be done, I put myself under the authority of God. And I don't care if it provokes other people. And I believe John the Baptist had a peace that pervaded his body that everyone could see. And when Jesus starts his ministry, he realizes that what happened to John will happen to him. Because he will ultimately put himself under God's authority and you can't live that way without knowing that you're going to provoke someone else. Which always surprises me. And I'm just speaking for me. Like, I'm always surprised when people get agitated when I'm fi- they find out I'm a believer, Or when I'm frustrated that the uh, local sports, you know, associations or the local school districts or the local community will just, like all of them, you know, they they don't live by Christian values. They don't live by Jesus' authority. And it surprises me every time. And then I wonder why I struggle with having peace. But when I acknowledge that Christ's ways are not everyone's ways, and that I shouldn't put that standard on people, and if I can just believe that my decisions of living under Christ's authority will provoke other people's authority, then I'm not surprised. God's peace continues to remain within me. See, sometimes it's those people of darkness that stop us from being the people of peace that God calls us to. Isaiah 9 says, hey, Isaiah says to Ahaz, You know what, you can trust the King of Heaven, or you can trust the rulers of earth. But it's gonna go much better for you if you trust the King of Heaven. And he says in poetic fashion, by naming a son Emmanuel, God with us, and then by giving this poem from Matthew or er, from Isaiah 9, you've enlarged the nation. You've increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bars across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. That might sound a little violent, but it's actually filled with peace. I mean, consider that Isaiah is saying, take heart, choose joy. God is the one over every power, every ruler, and every authority. Consider that you rejoice at the harvest because the produce is done. Or that you divide the plunder when the victory is so overwhelming that you win. Or that you take the bloody boots and the clothes and throw them in a fire because there is no more war. Peace has come. This is cleanup time and celebration time. See, in poetic symbolism, Isaiah is trying to encourage the king of his people that God's peace is with them, even before they can see it, even when there's people of darkness. They don't have to stop being filled with the hope and the light and the peace that God offers. Unfortunately, they don't choose life. And interestingly enough, Isaiah adds this little twist. He says, just like in Midian's defeat, that's kind of like saying, I'm going to link back to this epic story that you all know. It would be the closest thing I could think of is, remember when Luke Skywalker defeated the entire dark forces of evil, the Emperor and Darth Vader? When they were ruling the galaxy, this little, unexperienced boy that grew into this young, inexperienced man believed that the good side of the force would defeat the dark side of the force. Now, it's not quite the same, but it's the closest that I could come to. That's what God is going for, I think, when Isaiah says, remember Midian's defeat, because Midian was this place that was like Assyria, interestingly enough, they came in and oppressed God's people, because whenever God's people decided that they were going to decide what was right and what was wrong, uh, other people came in and oppressed them. But when they followed what God said was right, they had peace. See, sometimes all we have to do is hear God and choose to follow him. If we'd stop and listen. So Midian is oppressing the people. Their army is too numerous to count. Every time there's a harvest, they steal all their food. The people are like, There's nothing we can do. We can't fight. We can't scheme. There's nothing left. I guess we'll cry out to God. And they do. And so God sends the runt of the family, of the smallest clan, of the weakest tribe. And then, when that man amasses 32,000 men to go against an army that that he can't count, God says, that's too many, and he whittles it down to 300. And then, he says, now, I know you think you should take swords and shields into battle, but no, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna take torches and trumpets and clay jars, because that's how you win battles. Now, I'm no military strategist, but I don't know if I would have signed up for that. And, and this is what Isaiah is telling the king to consider. Consider, oh, you're, you're filled with no peace, you're filled with anxiety, you're filled with distress, the places of darkness, the people of darkness. Oh, hey, consider this story where 300 people took on an army that was too numerous to count, and they did it with trumpets and torches and clay jars. It's in Judges 7. And, and further, we'll take the 300, we'll divide that tiny army into smaller groups, And here's what you're going to do. You're going to carry your torch and your trumpet and your jar. And then when the leader, Gideon, makes the call, you're going to blow the trumpet, smash the pots, and lift up the torches. And then maybe yell. That's the battle plan. And interestingly enough, in Judges 7, it says they do exactly that. And while Each man held his position around camp. Notice he doesn't say grabbed a sword, started fighting, or anything like that. While each man held his position around the camp, all of Midian ran crying out as they fled. And when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And the army fled to all these places, out of their homeland. I would submit to you that this is not about violence. This is about God being in control. And when we have distress come in, God might even be speaking to us, and we respond with, I don't think that's gonna work. That doesn't seem to make sense. And yet our responsibility is not to understand how God will keep his promises and pursue his purposes. Our responsibility is to trust him and follow him. And when we do, he will fill us with peace. You know, at Christmas, what we believe will bring us joy might actually do that. If we believe that stuff is going to bring us joy, that if we get the right presents that we'll have what we need at Christmas, then we're saying our highest authority is possessions. And when we have them, we might feel it. And when we don't, we won't. Or if we think that a, biggest, a big bonus from work or enough cash to pay for all the presents will bring peace, joy, and happiness at Christmas, then our highest authority is money. And if we have it, we might feel it for a moment, but eventually it will fall. Or if we think that, oh, if I could just spend, someone, spend time with someone special this Christmas, if I could just hear, I'm sorry, or I'm proud of you, or will you forgive me? Or will you come over? And your highest authority is other people. And when they say it, you might have it, but eventually it will fade away. Because the highest authority is the one who came so darn humbly who is God saves, who is God with us, who is the prince of peace, the one who God sends isn't the modern-day Gideon. That's what they expected. It's a child. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign over David's throne and over his kingdom, establish and upholding it with justice, righteousness, from that time forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. So we can learn from history and we can learn from God's word that King Ahaz had the opportunities, had these visions and signs and poems, and he missed it. And at the time of Jesus, when the Rome was at its strongest, people could have missed it too. But it's that time that God says, unto us a child is born, and on earth peace with whom his favor rests. Because sometimes we can't see it because what stops us from being a person of peace is the darkness that's in us. Those moments when people come at you hostily and you want to respond with hostility, you want to respond with scheming, that's probably the darkness within you. It is the darkness within me, and I have to give that up. I have to turn that over. I have to find the Christ child in the places that I'd least expect it. In the humble home or in the helpless baby in the one who does not depend on power or people but depends entirely all his life on God. He never responds with violence and yet he fights evil and loves people all the time. And if we can see him in the start of his ministry, we will be filled with peace. But it's gonna take us to do two things. And we see it in what we've already read. When Jesus says repent, he then calls ordinary people to get out of their life and follow him. If you and I want to become people of peace, we have to reorient our life to his life. We have to leave the things that are comfortable. We have to leave the things that are predictable. We have to leave the things that we think will provide us with what we need because only God can provide us with what we need. It may not mean sell your house or sell your job or give away your job, but it spiritually means, God, I am reorienting all of my trust into you. And the second way that we are restored with God, that we are filled with peace, that we become these people of peace after we reorient our life to his life is to invite his healing into our life. Notice all the different places that we read when I started. That Jesus goes and all the different diseases he heals. I mean, diseases that cripple people for life, even today. And yet, Jesus heals them because he knows that it's not just not fighting that gives us peace. Because we can be not well, and we can be not sick and still be not well. We can be not fighting with someone we care about and still not be in good relationship with them. We know that this kind of restoration, this kind of peace permeates everything and we only can receive it through his healing. And that's why I think Jesus starts, Matthew starts with these particular points of Jesus' ministry to say this is the peace of God embodied. Will you turn and see it? Will you pray with me as we close today and Worship band comes up as we can just take time for the Spirit of God to respond to us, to speak to us through His Word, through His Spirit, through the songs, through your silence, our silence, about what God might be saying to you about being a person of peace. Father, thank you for sending a helpless baby, not a king. Not a grown man, not someone who could depend on himself or herself, or depend on other people or scheme, but someone who is completely and utterly dependent. That's the kind of person that I want to be, God. And I know when I do that, you fill me with your peace that that comes through, and is shared with others. And God, when we are filled with your peace, when we become these people of peace, it's just part of what happens as we share it with others. God, may you send your spirit upon us right now that you would speak to us about how we need to reorient our lives to yours, about how we need to invite your healing to receive your peace, a peace that fills us, that heals us, that restores us. In Jesus' name.